You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Andrew Berman. His inspiration is to apply new technology to build new products that can touch millions of people in ways that were impossible before. He's the founder of Nanit, the first camera to track human behavior, the lead in Baby Monitor, experienced investor from seed to LBO stages, Silicon Valley, New York, and other markets. He's active and experienced angel investor, SaaS, security, healthcare, consumer, and CV slash AI. And he is the current CEO and founder of Val. On today's show, we talk about how is it different the role of a CEO from a COO? How important is time into the success of a company? Why are hardware companies so hard? What is it about taking a company from zero to one that's so enjoyable? And how does one know when it's time to move on from one company to another? This and much more on today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Joy. All right. Cheers. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Andy, thank you for taking the time today to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, we had our call before, I got to know you a little bit, but for our audience out there, can you give a little bit of history, a little bit of your career up into this point? Sure. So I actually started my career in Silicon Valley. I worked at Brothers First. This was 2007. Spoiler alert, everyone else here is going to know what comes next. We went bankrupt in 2008, so I really feel for everyone who's going through today or maybe here or maybe under seeing what's going on there. And then at the end of 2009, I went to work at Norwest Venture Partners, did a lot of investing in their consumer and enterprise companies and just an incredible experience learning. We invest in a lot of stuff in the video space, companies like LifeSize and BlueJeans. And then I realized very quickly I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I didn't know what. So I went to business school. And about a year after business school, I started my first company. And that first company is a business called Nanit. At Nanit, we track breathing, we track sleep, we track movement, a video feed. We're the leading baby monitor on the market. And Google Ventures led our Series C. And for all the parents out there who are listening, I, I hope you really enjoy the product experience because I keep hearing amazing things. In tw- 2019, I left. and. I had had this epiphany. We had a team in a team in Israel, a team in York, and a bunch of people spread out throughout the United States. And collaboration was so hard. And we tried all the tools under the sun for allowing us to communicate and collaborate. So these were things like Zoom. And in my background and what we had done with video, I came to this conclusion: the audio had gotten good, the video had gotten good. But it had the product experience hadn't changed since 2009. I took that and I left and I raised a seed round for a company called Vowel. And that's where I'm CEO today. And at Vowel, we, we say we make, we turn meetings into searchable, shareable, clippable audio. What does that mean? That's what we think the future of meetings are. And we we're focused on enabling users to collaborate, not communicate. So if a team has a meeting in New York and there's engineers in New Zealand, the second that meeting's over, they'll have an instant 
artifact that's available to them so they can quickly get the TLDR of what was important. And we're integrated. We integrate our product suite into other tools and systems of record. And what our customers today call Val, they call it time travel. And what I'm, tr- what I'm building here is the next great collaboration company. What I think the future of video is. Because up until today, video has very much been thought of as a communication medium. But it's not. It's how we work. Whether you're remote, whether you're hybrid, whether you're anything in, in between. There was just, just immense platform shift a few years ago. And now I think if you're in an office, you're on video a few hours a day. If you're remote and distributed, you're on video maybe all your day. And the product that I want to exist has yet to be built. And I'm building it today at Vowel. And I invite your listeners to come check it out. And at the end, we'll give them a, a coupon code for the Silicon Valley podcast. Oh, that's fantastic. All right. Now, let's go back. There was so much there. One of the things that I, I'm kind of curious about, you went to business school. You started a company right after that. Do you ever go, and the company's highly successful, do you ever go back and kind of have that bragging rights to your, your former colleagues? Well, it's it's hard. I mean, I, I can't say I have bragging rights. I have some really successful people in my class and I have a really successful group of friends. I the funny the interesting little tidbit is for my for Nanit, the pre-seed round is a bunch of my friends from business school. So a bunch of people who've been incredibly successful in private equity and hedge funds are actually very early investors in my company and have been along for the ride and have have watched this this idea come from a pitch deck to a very large brand sold throughout the United States. How often would you say that these NBA, I mean, especially the, I'm not sure if you want to share the one you went to, but you know, the elite of the elite, that they get together, pool money together and invest in their peers' products or projects? So it's an interesting dynamic. I don't know how often that occurs. This is a friend group. Honestly, we've looked at all, we've done a lot of angel investing together. We're in a lot of deals together. It helps that one of them is very senior at a large cap buyout firm. Another is also runs his own venture slash growth equity fund. And another has been a growth investor in public markets. So people really understand the domain. Everyone shares deal flow among each other. And I can't say I know how often it it happens, but I, I would say it happens more than not because I've seen a lot of some of my, I'm an investor in some of my other f- classmates' companies. How nice was that to have instead of going out to friends and I mean, they are the friends part, but the friends and family that most people think about the, hey, this is my cousin. He's successful real estate agent, or this is uh, my buddy at the BNI group that you know, is writing a check. How nice was it to have? Okay, this person's got a background in hedge fund. This person has a background. These people are more business savvy. They're writing these first checks in the company. So it's interesting because we have a bit of both. When you start, when we started a hardware company in 2014, at the end, we said we were going to use computer vision to track, to track baby's movement. And we were going to build this thing called Nanit. People thought we were crazy. And so when we, before we raised our VC round, we raised a I think around half a million, three quarters of a million from friends and family. And it really was. It was my classmates from business school, my classmates from undergrad, doctors and dentists still. It's sort of like that Airbnb founding story where they sell to Obama's. We literally went and asked everyone. I think we were burning like 25,000 a month 
And for that first year to keep the lights on, I had to go raise 50,000 a month, more or less. And so what that looked like was go take 30 meetings and hope you have a 10% conversion rate. And that would typically be how we did it for the first six to eight months before we actually raised an institutional seed. Okay, but before that, your background, the investment banking route or VC route, how did you know that this product could actually be built? Was your co-founder a technical co-founder? I mean, how did you partner with someone or did you partner? Who was that team that you knew, hey, we could build this? And also, I'm also curious, your background in VC and that, how did that kind of lead you, give you benefits, give you confidence to start a company? Because most people on that route, it's more the opposite. It's more, you have a company, you exit, time to go the, the banker route or VC route first. Hey, we're in this nice cushy job. You know, we got an amazing expense account. Now we're going the opposite direction and eating ramen. All right, let's start. How do we transition? So I just felt as a young VC at a very large venture firm, I had to do it. It was something I sitting across the table from these incredible entrepreneurs who were putting it all on the line and starting these great companies. I wanted to do it. I didn't know how. I didn't know what I wanted to start. But when I left to go to business school, that was my plan. I was going to start a company. I wasn't sure if it was going to be two years after, 10 years after, but it was something that I always knew I wanted to do. In terms of the founding story of Nanit, um, I was actually introduced to my co-founders through a close friend. And my business, uh, my business partner, who was our CEO at Nanit, he was getting his postdoc at Cornell Tech, and he had a PhD in machine learning and computer vision. Prior to getting his postdoc and getting his PhD, he had worked at Applied Materials, where they had built a computer vision-attached electronic microscope to do wafer inspection in semiconductors. These are million-dollar machines that as the wafer comes off a line, they would use an electronic microscope to see if there are any defects, and that could do it better than a human doing the inspection. My third co-founder, who's CTO of Nana today, Tor, also worked at Applied Materials and he built the basically the back end system. And our CEO had built the, the algorithms to do computer vision. And so between the two of them, I knew we could build production grade electronics. Did I know that we were going to be able to build a great consumer product experience? No. Was that a risk I was willing to take every day of the week? What about them? Because with their backgrounds, to me, it just sounds risk adverse. I mean, when you put that on a piece of paper, I'm like, these people would never drop this and do a startup. Who convinced who to go forward with this idea? So the actual Cornell Tech program that he, the postdoc program that he was in was focused on spinning out company. It, it's, it's on Cornell Tech's campus in New York City, and they're focused on taking uh, postdocs and creating companies out of it and sort of creating a mini YC program. So that's the pure focus of the program. So when he applied, that's what he was going after. Did everyone have their roles kind of lined out the very beginning or how much did it evolve over that first year? Everything evolves over those first few years in terms of roles and responsibilities. Anyone who tells you anything different, I mean, I think is lying. I mean, at the beginning, everyone, what are we focused on doing? My job was to fundraise, to keep the lights on, to help on product design, to help on uh, branding, to help on recruiting, you name it. At that point in time, you do everything that you, to, that you need to be successful. As we grew, 
we became much more focused on what our individual function was. As we scaled and built it into an incredible business, obviously it starts to look like a normal company on the inside. What were some of those milestones or, or that that it was, okay, it's now time that I can not do everything and kind of niche down and focus on one? So I think it's not just the milestones. So for us, I think it was product, de- there's a product development phase. Then there's a scan, then there's shipping a product. Then there's refining, then there's shipping, then there's scaling the business. And then there's continual product development. Nana today is run by an incredible CEO, a woman named Sarah, who has just been in an amazing force in terms of building the business and scaling the company uh, from a marketing and sales perspective. And I think every business goes through this phase. At the early stages, you're trying to find product market fit. Then you find product market fit, and then it's time to throw some gas on the fire and ramp up sales and marketing. In our case, it's a direct Nana is a direct to consumer business, so it's going to be it's very much focused much more on the marketing side of things. There's only a few channels left to sell through, and so those are the Amazons and a few big box retailer. But the rest of it is just marketing dollars and how do we scale and grow our product offering on our website. For that product, when you're building it out, there's so much unknown to, I mean, what type of surveys were you doing? What type of information from the market were you gathering? If you built this, you had confidence that it would be demanded by the consumer. So we did a lot of user interviews. We did a lot of user research. We did a lot of prototyping. We had a user researcher on staff from day one. But I think also in this type of product category, you knew people wanted a baby monitor. Baby monitors were an established market. So then how do you provide a 10x better experience? I think the early early marketing message for the company was the Tesla of baby monitors. I think that for a while, that may have been the hero slogan on the homepage. And I think you knew that if you could provide a great product experience, you would win because it's an existing product category. Then the question comes to, okay, so how do you prioritize features you should ship? Should it be sleep tracking? Should it be, we now allow people to look at breathing in the app? Should it be focused on milestone development? What should it be? And I think that revolves around very good product sense and prioritization. One of the most difficult things in the early stage of a company is prioritization. Share a little insight into that, how to go about doing it right versus what most people normally do. I think if you ask 10 people and you get six to seven answers that are remotely similar, that's what a product manager would tell you is enough direction to know that you're prioritizing things correctly. I'm not a classically trained product manager, uh, but I have an incredible head of product, Anna Marie Clifton at Vowel. And I think between her, myself, and one of our other product managers, we conduct a lot of user research and we're continually looking to see commonalities and trends. And once you see, if you can, if you survey six to 10 people and you get some commonalities, that's probably enough for a sample from a population. Now, going back to Nimic, hardware, everyone says hardware is hard. Why is that? Do you have stories that you can share of some of the pain that might be associated with a hardware company versus a software company? Well, I think you get to interview a lot of different entrepreneurs on this podcast, and it's everything from fintech to software to I'm pro- I think I'm probably one of the few hardware founders. 
And I'll contrast it with Nanit versus Vowel. At Vowel, I get to focus on if we want to change something, most likely it'll take a couple of weeks. We could probably even change something in a week. Uh, we could ship a new feature. And if you follow us on our Twitter or if you look good on our product roadmap, we ship weekly. At Nanit, we can ship we, we can ship every few weeks or weekly on the app, but the app's only one piece of it. The actual hardware development cycle is something between like 18 and 24 months minimum. So if we want to make a change to the actual core camera or the mounting or the industrial design, that's going to take a, that's not going to happen for 2 years from now. Versus I had coffee with my head of product this morning and she and I discussed some changes that we're going to make and that'll be live next week. So the instant gratification the user feedback comes a lot faster in a traditional software company. I think also one of the big differences in hard, between hardware and software is there are only a few investors out there that will fund hardware companies. Everyone says they do, but when you really look, dig down deep, it's few and far between. Whereas I think almost every VC that we've all ever heard of specializes in SaaS. Do you have any stories of visiting manufacturers overseas or that when you're looking for your OEM that you could share? Sure. So, I mean, I visited factories in Guangdong, which is a little bit outside of Shenzhen. I visited, uh, so we got to see in that, and we went to a factory for an, an OEM I can't talk about. But in this factory, they make all HP printers, the charger for your Apple iPhone, some st- specialized stuff for Nike plus the Xbox. And it's very interesting to see what these manufacturing look, lines look like. They are incredibly modern at this specific factory. They are in, incredibly clean. There's, a LC, there's uh, LCD monitors above showing the utilization of every line. And so this is one of the most advanced factories I've seen. I've never been to a Tesla factory. I have been to a Toyota factory. And then I've seen a bunch of factories outside of Shanghai, the small, the small suppliers, the larger suppliers. And I think it ranges just depending on the expertise, but I've seen such diverse products in electronics where they're made. I mean, everything from BMW taillights to aero routers. I can tell you where they're made. I've met some of their teams in the factory. I've seen the lines. And it's just kind of amazing. There's a very different thing in manufacturing. There's high volume and then there's high touch. When most people think of how iPhones are made, that's high volume. The other side of it is high touch. And you're going to do something very differently if you're producing machines that are a million dollars and you're going to produce six of them a month versus producing iPhones and you're going to have to have, I don't know, 10,000 roll off a line in a day. So going back to even before the the MBA, you looked at a lot of companies to invest in. How did that benefit you when you were going out raising capital from friends and family for those early rounds? How was going into that with that mindset, with that experience, able to set you up for success? You know, I, I, I knew how to do a pitch deck. I knew how to price around. I knew the venture process very well. I also knew the narrative, you, how to create a narrative. But I think until you do it f- yourself for the first time and until you get those rejections, 
you really don't understand what it's like to be in someone's shoes. And I think I've, I've wrote about this somewhere, or maybe I've told people about this, but I think we were rejected by 350 separate investors while you were there. And it, it really takes a lot of grit to, to say, I'm just going to keep going and I'm going to power through this and we're going to find someone because all it takes is one yes. And when I speak to founders and fundraisers and going around, that's what I consistently tell them. It takes one yes. And until you've really gotten 300 no's, you're not really out of the ballgame. And grit is what's, what allows you to survive. I mean, if you look at what Elon, whoever, whatever you want to say about Elon Musk, the guy has more grit than anyone I've ever seen in my entire life. And I think that there are some founders who just find lightning in a bottle and comp- origin stories of companies like that. But I think for the vast majority of people, it's a, it's a, it's a zigzag line to that IPO. And along the way, it just takes grit and the determination and the power to get through this. Put it in perspective, was that 350 random angels or in random investors or were that 350 targeted investors? That's not random. I summed up the spreadsheet at one point, probably after the Series A. That includes VCs, that includes angels, that includes professional, uh, the super angels, includes everything. That was probably in the first two and a half years of the company's life. So the company, okay, first two and a half years, raising capital, company really takes off. But then at some point it was, hey, it's time to move on. Start this new company that you're at right now. What was that trigger that made you go, you know, it, it, it's time to do something else. Why not ride it for the next couple of years with a potential IPO or whatever the exit is? For me, I realized the company was on great footing. I realized we had built an incredible management team. I had spent a number of years there and I just had a burning desire to start something new. And I, I saw another market that I thought would be very interesting and it'd be a real challenge. And for me, we had a large team in Israel. We had a, this large team in New York and I wanted to figure out a better way to help us collaborate. And so 2019, I set out to start this company and that company became Bowel. And when we raised our seed, we said, we're going to go build this next, va- the next great company in video and collaboration. We're going to focus on building this hub in your company for s- that you can search for all the meetings, whether you were there, whether you weren't, whether someone shared it with you, or whether you forgot about it three weeks later when you had to follow up on this conversation. And did your team, though, did they think you're absolutely crazy to leave at this time or were they supportive? Were they, cause there's an opportunity cost there to, to leave. So we did it in a very organized manner. They did not think I was crazy. I didn't just walk out. I think the, it took six to tw- six to nine months. Then I took a break and I, I took a break for three to three or four months. And then, Start establishing what I wanted to build to start establishing the fundamentals of Owl. If someone wants to walk away from a team of a company that's, that's they're growing, building, do you have tips or suggestions on a, a proper, correct way to do it? So it depends on your role, I think. What would my tips be to somebody who, who's going to leave? So I had been there four years, I had built up my team, 
I spoke to my investors. I gave them a long heads up. So I spoke to my board. I spoke to my co-founders. We telegraphed it. We communicated it well. This was not, hey, I'm leaving. This was a, a long transition. And it was my burning desire to go start Vowel. That's what really drove this. Interesting. And then what are some of the benefits of having this success when branching off and doing a second company? What were some of the either lessons that you took with you to make this accelerate? Or what were some of the learns or resources that you're able to pull from? Sure. So I'm very deliberate. I think before we would have just said, say la vie almost. This is life. I hope it works out. I think now we're much more deliberate. We're deliberate in the way we hire. We're the, deliberate in our values. We're deliberate in how we educate everyone on our mission and vision. We hire very much for culture. I tell the team consistently that we're focused on a marathon, not a sprint. We're very, we plan. We're very deliberate in how we're br- building our organization. And we think about how we're going to build a company for the ages. We're not, we, we try not to make decisions that are going to put us back. A few, a few years and also was very deliberate about the type of investors I was willing to, I wanted to partner with, not willing. I have incredible, incredible investors at Vowel. Amity Ventures, uh, Peter Bell and Patrick Yang led my seed and David Hornick, who's just an incredible force, led my Series A. And I could not be more happy partnering them. I also added a lot of People focus on remote work and collaboration. And this was very deliberate too. So we have the SVP of design at Slack, Ethan Eisman. We have the co-founder of Intercom, Des Trainer, ex-CMO of Miro, Barbara Gago, Reddy Kezarek, the founder and C- uh, vice chairman and CEO of Okta, and just and De- uh, Tope, the CEO and co-founder of Calendly. So we were able to add some in- just incredible angels who had such good experience in the future of work and collaboration and scaling businesses that I, we met people along the way at Nanit at Valo. I actively sought them out from day one. Let's, let's double click on that. Cause I don't think we've really, really dove into that too much on this podcast of the search criteria for your investors and narrowing it down the way that, I mean, everyone you named right there, it's, directly related to to the company you're building right now. It's so strategic when you think about it. What advice can you give other people out there when searching for those investors? So I, I think it really comes down to what type of people are you looking for? What skill sets do they bring to the table? Who do you know and who can you ask? I always ask my founder network. I always ask other CEOs. I always ask the VCs who are coming into my rounds, who else should I have on the cap table? And I'm very deliberate. It, it depends on what type of skill sets you're looking for. So if you're a multi-time founder, but it's your first time doing enterprise, you probably want people on go-to-market accelerate uh, and people who can help on go-to-market acceleration. If you're a first-time consumer founder, you probably want people with consumer product experience and design. If you're a first-time founder, you probably want people experience raising capital. And so on and so forth. So you have to sit there and say, well, what type of skill set do I want from investors? And what type of network can they help me bring? If I'm starting an automotive company, I probably want people who are ex-Tesla. 
if I'm starting a security company, I want the security mafia from Silicon Valley and so on and so forth. How should you think of your advisors and your, and your investors and how they could complement each other? How, I mean, how strategic were you or other founders should be when they're really looking at the advisors for their company? Sure. So I think there's, there's advisors, there's consultants. And I say this to everyone who I join, who joins as an advisor, you're going to be an advisor. What type of work are you expected to do? And I think a lot of founders learn this along the way. You're going to take, if you're, there's advisors who do work, there are advisors who pick up the phone and there are advisors who lend their name. I only really work with advisors who do work and advisors who pick up the phone. Everyone else can be an investor. And even as an investor, what are you looking for from an investor? What's the expectation? Do you want someone who's, who's going to put you on their Twitter bio? I'm saying that because I saw something on Twitter about young founders asking for that. Or are you looking for people who are going to have introductions to fintech companies, for example, or can bring you a banking relationship if you're in the fintech world? And I think it all depends on what type of company you're building and what type of skill sets you need. Before the podcast, we, we talked and you'd mentioned you really like the zero to one component of a business. Now, most people I talk to, I think zero to one is the most nerve wracking. They, they hate it. Why do you like that zero to one portion of time? It's fun. Why well, it might be nerve wracking. It's fun. You're not sitting there doing KPI reviews. You're not doing your weekly business. You're not going through a P&L. You're a bunch of really intelligent people in a room coming together to try to solve a problem. Maybe you'll be successful. Maybe you won't. I've only been successful so far. But I'm not the only one who said that. I had a really incredible mentor, a guy named Jim Barnett, who started a bunch of companies in Silicon Valley. I think most recently started a company called Glint. And he used to tell me that was his favorite part of the company too. I mean, it's just a group of really intelligent people who are in a room just like this. And we're going to whiteboard it out, or maybe it's virtual today. And we're going to come up with a solution to a problem that we think. is. How was your pivot from COO to CEO? What were some of the skills that you had to adopt or learn for this transition? So I think the biggest pivot on, I think the roles are very similar in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of the, a lot, a lot of the responsibilities were very similar. The difference, I think, as CEO is you're involved, the, the job of a good CEO, setting the vision, raising capital, hiring an incredible team to execute on it. What is the job of a good COO? Focusing on helping rate. It, it depends is the answer. What is the job? It's execution is really what the job of a good COO is. And I think the trade-off is as CEO, everyone comes to you looking for a decision. And I'm not a micromanager. I believe that I should hire the best people that I possibly can for roles. And they should be making decisions unless they are incredibly important decisions on a daily basis. I mean, bureaucracy kills organizations. Bureaucracy kills companies. So I'm looking for a culture of execution. I like to hire people who I view as natural athletes. And I don't mean hockey players. I mean, literally individuals who can learn anything quickly, who can be in functions quickly, but are specialists in what their craft and what they do. 
I mean, it sounds like you had it, you have it all figured or had it all figured out. What, what did you have to learn or start to incorporate when you took on the role of founding the company, being the CEO? Well, I think there's always more to learn. I think um, there was a portrait, of, there was a portrait of Nike's CEO in the Wall Street Journal, and he talks about how he has a therapist of 20 years and he has an executive coach. I don't have a therapist, but I have an executive coach. And we speak on a daily basis and we don't speak on a daily basis. Excuse me. We speak on a weekly basis and she's absolutely incredible in helping me become a better leader and a better operator. And I think I'm constantly looking for feedback. I'm constantly looking to improve and I'm constantly looking to get better at my craft. And I think I try to model myself off of what I believe is what I believe will be successful. When should someone seek out a coach? So I recommend it to everyone. I don't know. I mean, when shouldn't you seek out a coach? I just believe there's always room for improvement. I've read a lot of books from people like Slootman's Amp It Up or other famous coaches in Silicon Valley. And I just, I always remembered at Norwest, the advice was the CEO should have somebody to help them improve their leadership skills, their communication skills, and so on and so forth. And that's what I try to do. I try to be the best I possibly can so that my team, I can empower my team to really execute. When looking at ideas, either before when you're looking at pitch decks or starting deciding to go to Val, how important were, was thinking about timing, kind of the future? How, I guess, more or less, my question is how important do you think it is for timing to dictate success? Why now? is an incredible determinant of success in a company. I mean, you could build a mobile gaming company in 2003 and the platform's just not ready for mobile gaming. You can build, you could have built a taxi dispatch company pre the iPhone and you would never have had Uber. In both of my company's cases, there was an inherent why now. At Nanit, the why now, in addition, where it was, computer vision was going to get so much better and there was going to be a, 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 a revolution in deep learning. And we were at the very early stages on it. And that was the bet of the kind. And that was the bet that we could build this product using a camera to track all these insights and that computer vision and deep learning were going to get substantially better. At Vowel, it's a similar bet. What do we do? We record all the conversation. We transcribe all the conversation. And then we transcription itself, I believe, is, kind of, is almost worthless. But the transcription power search. And so when we started the company, transcription wasn't as accurate as it is today. And there was this, just this bet on that natural language processing, machine learning, and now what is, and a lot of stuff in generative AI were going to get better and better. And that was going to be able to power core features of the product. And so far, that has been the case. Transcription has gotten much better since we started the company. There is new players coming into the market on a daily basis, like OpenAI's Whisper model. And what you can do with information and data has just changed so much in four years. I mean, generative AI is the big buzzword of the day today. With that then, is is Val more a data play or is it more of a customer interaction play combination like what's the difference so 
to build a great collaboration company, you have to pr- give software that provides people value. It's, it's user-centric product design. So many historical products are very uh, in the enterprise are so focused uh, or are so poorly designed. Buyers today, they want consumer software. They want the same experience that they're going to get from Instagram in their enterprise software. And so how do you get users to join moments and to feel delight? So that's first and foremost. And that comes from solving problems. And then how do you then uncover insights? And what is Val's vision and where are we trying to be? Uh, we're trying to be this company at the center of your, we're trying to be this file cabinet at the center of your company and build all sorts of interesting insights from it. So today we allow you to search and share and clip information. It's, it's like having Loom meet Zoom. But in the future, let's push those insights to you. Let's make, instead of pulling the insights out, and that's a whole different way to run your organization. And on any given day, in any given week, somebody can't attend a meeting. Somebody can't be in the office. And I heard this story from one of our customers a week ago. It was so incredible for them to quickly watch the, highlight, the highlights of a meeting on 2x speed on a plane. The meeting had happened 30 minutes before, and they were on an airplane, and they were just quickly getting the download themselves. On, the, on our mobile app. That's the future of work. And that's the future that I'm building. For the company at the very beginning when, when pitching the dream to investors, I would guess a lot of their reactions would probably be, we, there's already Zoom, there's already the Blue Jeans, there's these huge players in the market right now. In those conversations, are the investors thinking, well, these guys would be a good acquisition target? Are they thinking these guys will have some differentiated feature that they'll, they'll, they'll want? Like, how do the investors kind of position the company so in their minds, okay, it, it's worth taking a, taking a risk on? Well, I, I think there's, there's this misnomer in VCs. Uh, in v, it, it, when people think about VCs, what are people really looking for? They're really looking for incredibly large ideas the outliers. The venture capital is basically a power loss business. So one deal will return the entire fund. And if I told you in 2012 that we needed a new messaging application and it was going to replace email and chat, you would have told me I'm crazy. But I think last year, Salesforce acquired Slack for $35 billion. And I'm telling you in 2022 that we need a tool for the future of work for video collaboration and it's not Zoom. And that's the bet. The bet is that there is a, this is the biggest category on the face of the earth. And, you'll, and we will be able to carve out our niche and deliver a product. It's also a product category that's incredibly viral. It's incredi- it can be incredibly sticky. And a lot of the existing businesses today, while they have a network effect and they have name brand recognition, they don't exactly have a data mode. And it's very interesting when you start to think about it, if you, what you can do with data. And that was, that's been the thesis of every company I've ever started. Now it is, has so much data at its core and that's what allows 
you to do all this stuff. I mean, AI is built on top of training data. That's what Nana is. It says we have a lot of compute. We have a lot of different training data to allow our computer vision algos to detect interesting information. And we're going to build some very interesting stuff at Vowel in the future. And I think we're just starting to see some of the uh, some of some of what is possible today. What do you think is going to be that inflection point where things just take off? How so? Do you, what do you mean exactly? User acquisition. Going from a steady increase to that pivot where it's, you get that hockey stick. You know, it's a good question. I, I don't think anyone ever knows when, when, you, when you hit escape velocity. Excuse me. I don't think anyone ever knows when you hit escape velocity. I think we have a lot of bets. I think we, we have built a lot of great features. And I think we're just, the way I like to see it in terms of my journey is we're in inning two on building a, a company for the ages. And with that, Andy, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, Val, get a promo code or anything, what's the best way to go about doing it? Please share anything. We'll put it in the show notes. Sure. So... Would love to have people check out Val. I mean, Val's value prop is to 10x your meeting by turning into searchable, shareable, instantly available knowledge. And we're giving for everyone who was on this, who everyone who listened to the podcast, a coupon code. It, the coupon code is Silicon Valley, and it's a hundred. It gives you three months free of our Val Pro plan for an unlimited number of users. So, for anyone who is interested in what I said, check it out. And see if we you, we could make you become a superhuman and increase the productivity and efficiency of your team. Fantastic! So we're going to have that information in the show notes. And well, wanna Andy, I want to thank you for your time on the Silicon Valley podcast. Before that, if anyone out there, if you're looking to get in contact with an investment banker, I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast. That's what I do. I focus on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. But uh, feel free just to connect with me on thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. And with that. Andy, I've had a lot of fun today and I learned a lot. So I really want to thank you for your time on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the Silicon Valley podcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.